happier than ever before No second chances Cause I love my friends and my opponents You are still the same Hey everybody, this is AJ and this is the Unnecessary Podcast I'm gonna go ahead and turn down that awesome jam The Light by Jordan Rakai. Rakai, I apologize, I don't know how to pronounce that it's so good. But anyway, this is the Unnecessary Podcast. Uh, if you're new to the Unnecessary Podcast, it's a very reflowing conversation with my friends about everything from pop culture to personal memories to fashion to movies and music to politics, uh, personal lives, everything in between. So welcome. Today, my guest is Kara. Hey, Kara. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you. That song is amazing. The light. Do you know how to pronounce that name? I think it's Jordan Rakai. Okay. How did you hear about this person? Because you made the song request. You know, over the last year or so, I'm I'm a pretty like pretty pretty um typical like bluegrass folk, Colorado music lover, and over the last year or so, I've expanded my horizon. Um, to different different spaces and that's one of them and it probably came up on some random spotify playlist and it was just the right mood the right time and um it just became my jam and i think you know the spotify is it's one of the few subscriptions that i pay for on a monthly basis because i think it allows us to um find and experience new artists and new music so easily and uh I think it's it's great for the music consumer. I think there's some challenges for artists, but um, through that through that mechanism is how I really broadened my music taste over the last year or two. That's so cool. I <clears throat> growing up, I always saw <clears throat> older people uh, only listening to music that they liked in high school and college, and I always thought to myself, I never want to be that person. So it's really cool mm-hmm. that you're exploring. Um, not that it's not okay to you know into that but i love the exploration stuff i've never heard of this person so i'm gonna get into Mm -hmm. it uh it's it's october 2020 when do you think we will be able to have concerts again i'm hoping by 2022 okay i i have gone to a few outdoor concerts i went to a drive-in um i saw what probably my favorite band of all time trampled by turtles it's a bluegrass folk band from duluth minnesota Hmm. Um, I saw a couple members of that band play at a drive-in movie theater in, I think, Laramie, Wyoming, a couple months ago. And it was weird and a little, it wasn't sad. It was just very, um, very bittersweet. But it did, it did, you know, soothe that, that music craving quite a bit because I'm a big live music person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Red Rocks has had a couple shows where it's like 170 tickets sold. Um mm. And that's been wonderful, but totally not the same. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping like 2022. I can't wait to go to a show at the Bluebird again. Mm, yeah, the Bluebird's a fun one. I live next to the Fillmore. Uh, yep. There's a lot of good music here in town. Um, I was hoping that since the stupid NFL has, you know, some stadiums with 12,000 fans and tw- like they're either at a ten- one-tenth capacity or sometimes a quarter in the dumber states. I'm like, could Red Rocks do a 10th capacity, which I looked up would be about a thousand people, but it's not the same. And, and mm-hmm. you're really excluding even more people than, than, mm-hmm. than usual that can't afford it. So, oh, well. When do you think we'll be able to, to see music again live? 
than indoors. I was really optimistic about next winter. Like I was optimistic about next summer having outdoor concerts um, with little circles for people's yeah. uh, social distance spots. And I was optimistic that in the winter we would figure out a way to have indoor stuff, but I, I'm always an optimist and people have cut down that optimism a little bit, but I'm so fortunate to, uh, you know, not, not be in like economic distress and, and all that stuff. So our health, mm-hmm. health, pro- health distress. So I'm pretty lucky just having to complain about not going to concerts. It is a real element of self-care that so many people don't, that don't get to do or don't get to have anymore. And I think that is, that's something I've noticed in our quarantine world and in our COVID world. I used to go to shows. I would have to limit, limit myself to go to maybe two shows a month, sometimes three. Mm-hmm. And um, it was such an important part of how I spent my time outside of work and how I regenerated and how I cared for myself. And, you know, having to, I've have been able to go to a couple outdoor shows, very small this summer, wasn't the same, but it did help a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Also did a ton of those like virtual shows that were fundraisers that occurred, you know, from all over the world earlier in March and April. And that was fun. Also a little sad, um, but you want to just support the artists in any way that you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, so while, you know, while it's, there's always something more that could be going wrong. I think it's important to acknowledge, oh my gosh, there's a bear. Um, it's a really important to acknowledge that we are, we have a huge part of our beings missing right now. Absolutely. But you're in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and you said there's a bear out your window. Yes. I can see it right now. I'm freaking out. I'm texting my boyfriend. Who's so in cool. The Is it a grizzly? Is it big and brown? It's a black bear. It's okay. so cool. I've never seen a bear like this before. Well, that's amazing. Yeah. I love that. That's the beauty of being out there in the mountains. Yeah. You text your boyfriend. That's, I saw my first bear up close earlier this year in Yellowstone. Um, wow. But something to, to your point about music, um, I used to go to a, a lot more shows than I do now. I maybe go to four a year when there's not a pandemic, maybe, maybe a little bit more, but it's a lot less than I used to. And, um, I just over the course of this pandemic have become a lot more empathetic or tried to have become more empathetic towards other people's self-care behaviors that are not mine. Like Uh hearing people that I love and respect and think are intelligent say that like going to a bar and being with their friends and drinking is the release Mm-hmm. And I was thinking of all my teacher friends and family and how they're all alcoholics. But, but yeah, that makes sense. Like everybody has a different routine that is essential to your homeostasis. Yeah, I definitely, I'm, a, I'm an extreme extrovert. And so having my primary mode of interaction um, with friends, with colleagues, professionally, socially, familially, whatever, have that be largely virtual, um, without hugs, without that physical contact, contact, and without being able to like see and feel somebody's energy. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it. I notice the lack of things that fill me up. Uh, you know, to counter counterbalance or counteract the the things about life that we all have that kind of deplete you. Um, so I, I certainly feel it. And I think the ways that we used to regenerate 
are really off the table and people are grieving that and they should be grieving it because it is very real grief. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My one great friend, Jono, shout out to Jono, who's currently up at Blackhawk, the spa director. Um, But when he, he's a pretty socially isolated guy um, when he wants to be. So I, when I was meeting him this summer, uh, you know, I knew he was pretty socially distanced, but he would force a hug on me. And I was like, man, this feels so good. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. like, Thanks, John. I like, I love you, John. Shout out once again. Um, Physical touch is so important for our health and our mental health. Yeah. And he would talk a lot about that as a massage therapist, um, mm-hmm. how he was touching bodies all day and he would have this extended philosophy, a grand unified theory, as I would like to call it, about touch, human touch. And um, he would talk about feet touching the ground and hands touching mm-hmm. each other. And I like thinking about a time before the technology that has ruined my attention deficit, but has brought me eternal joy. Um, mm-hmm. And so before that time, I'm sure that touching was was so stimulating because based on you know, the dearth of stimulation around you. Mm-hmm. My friend, and all the stimulation is important. It's just mm-hmm. how we, how we, how we get it, how we don't get it and how um, we have to counterbalance the things that we're not getting that used to fill us up. Mm-hmm. Me and Jono had this, I, I, I had to mention this, sorry to go on another tangent, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. So Jono talks about, you know, the relationship of, of the human body to the environment and, and kind of what, what the natural state could look like or a healthy state could look like. But we were camping a couple years ago or last year and actually about a year ago to this day. And we were doing some mushrooms out in the, the wilderness um, near Guanella Pass. And we were looking up at the stars after they came out and we were looking up for over an hour and our, there was not a sore muscle in our body. And I asked John, like, what's up with that? And he said that actually looking up like that is one of the most natural positions your head can be in. Like, every, hmm. like there's something about looking up like that when you're standing up like that, it straightens out your spine. Um, it really corrects a lot of things and it's therapeutic. And I was taught, I was thinking about how perhaps our evolution our consciousness and our bipedal uh, behavior and walking is related to us looking at the stars. And like, I'd like to think about positive feedback loops and how this universe and this world um, is mutually co-arising in the Buddhist sense or Mm -hmm. to use a Buddhist term. And so I feel like looking at the stars and the alignment of our spine and the fact that we are conscious beings who can enjoy looking at the stars uh, it's kind of all connected possibly. Mm-hmm. And how all of these emotions that we have directly influence or directly manifest in our bodies. I think that's one thing we don't think about enough. And, we, and the stress that so many human beings are feeling right now, grief, um, joy, contentment, um, you know, the ability to communicate, the inability to communicate, um, feelings of, you know, financial insecurity, how that impacts our ability to survive. All of those things, you know, spiritual connectedness, they all impact our bodies physically and not just how tense we are in our shoulders and our neck. They they correspond to organ health. When you look at the seven chakra 
modalities. Um, and each chakra pertains not only to a sense of how we show up in the world and in, in our communities and in our spiritual relationships with whatever being, if we have a being, they also pertained to very particular points in our bodies. And we often find out that if we're in conflict with somebody or um, having challenges with our ego, like we see that manifesting in our guts and our gut health and mm -hmm. feeling well or unwell. Mm -hmm. And I think we've, as, a, as an American culture, have gotten so far away from that. Um, and it's something that I'm trying to recenter myself in, um, especially to the time when so many stimuli around us have been taken away from us. So we kind of have a new foundation to build, um, which is a gift and a, and a huge stressor and a huge hurdle for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, what do we do when all we can do is just sit with ourselves? <laughs> yeah, right now feels like such a monumental change moment, mm -hmm. an inflection point, mm -hmm. and and people's mental health and the way that we view our brains and our our consciousness in our society um, is contributing to this inflection point. I I don't like the idea of people separating. And my own, I like how I would do it myself of separating my brain and my body. Mm -hmm. And when I started um, understanding that I needed my body to feed my brain um, and that your body and brain communicate, uh, that was very important for me. I used to be, I used to wish I was a brain in a tank, like Descartes mm -hmm. would say. Um, I was such a freaking Christian that I, I just wish that we didn't have physical bodies and once I was in an acupuncture treatment and meditating and I realized that my consciousness, this particular consciousness that I'm having right now relies on my physical body and what I eat and what I put into it, what I breathe and the thoughts I think feed into my consciousness. And it's all like one system and I can't separate one from the other. And I was wrong to ever do that. And I started crying and, just weeping over, over like my body, like the, the thanks that I had not given my body for 30 years of my life up to that point. It really mm -hmm. changed my life. Um, so yeah, I, I battle that myself, the, the dichotomy, the false dichotomy that like your brain is not part of your body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do as well. And the thing that we are kind of the, the mentality that everything we do and everything we put into our bodies, whether it's our thoughts, food, nutrients, substantive substances, like like alcohol, like marijuana, like mushrooms, like whatever it might be. Um, really, everything that we're putting into our bodies is medicine in some way or the opposite of medicine. And so until we start approaching everything to be like similar roots of the system that we're living in, the, the being our body, that, that system is our body, um, I think it's really easy to get away from health. It's really easy to forget um, that about our bodies and about our minds and the connectedness around it and the intentionality around both of those things. Totally. And it's only been in the, like, as I've gotten older, I've been, I've been thinking more about my own body and my own health, my own mental health and my own symphony with the rest of the universe. Cause I think that's part of my health. Like as I've been learning more about my health, I learn about how it's, it's not about just helping me. It's about helping the community, helping the environment. And it's, <clears throat> this one system. Um, gosh, I lost my train of thought. 
for a second because of course I just hit my vape pen. But I loved <laughs> I loved every I loved everything you were saying. <laughs> How have you, um, so one thing that I've been, and I do this for work during my day job. And so I think about mental behavioral health, substance use disorder treatment all the time, because that's what I'm paid to think about. Um, and I think one of the unexpected gifts of this pandemic, tangential and unfortunate, but still a gift, is that we are talking about our mental health, our collective and individual mental health in a way that we've never done before. And I think because we are collectively grieving and collectively and individually doing so poorly compared to how we were um, by many people's standards, I'm certainly not saying that, just reflecting what I've heard other folks say, people are admitting that they're not okay for the first time in a long time. And unfortunately, we also see sky high rates of depression, anxiety, um, substance use disorder, suicide ideation, attempt success. Like we're seeing all of these really negative factors increase dramatically and we're also talking about it and i think we're starting to normalize the conversation where we don't have to just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps we should be talking about the fact that we're not feeling okay and that we can feel we cannot feel okay when we can go to concerts when we can go to bars um, when we can hug our friends hmm. all of those systems or all of those um stimuli can and outlets can be back in place in the next few years and we still might not be doing okay. And we need to one, learn to not rationalize and how we are compared to other people. Um, but we need to be able to say, like, I'm not okay. And then our system around our, ourselves, meaning our healthcare system, our families, um, the way that we pay for health insurance or the way we pay for healthcare, like insurance, like, like Medicaid, like, um, like many other types of, of payment structures, those need to meet the, the growing need. And we need to make sure that our system is one that we can get those services when we're able to admit and talk about the fact that we need help. Um, and I think that we're making incredible progress here in Colorado, and I'd like to see that continue nationally. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think it is a gift that we can talk about it with our friends, especially for cisgender straight white men um, who are college educated and, and have been socialized to not admit emotion. Um, you know, they're, they're, uh, we're all, we're getting help in different ways, whether that's just mm -hmm. through peer interactions with our friends or through a more structured therapeutic intervention. Um, the impacts of this pandemic will be longstanding. And I think we're just getting our first big toe off of the finish line or the, excuse me, the starting line by saying we need help and yeah. everybody needs help right now. That's so true. I have come to the unfortunate conclusion. I think that a lot of times you need struggle to have progress and like you were saying, people are talking about their mental health um, more than ever before. And then a few years ago or the past few years, this whole thing about toxic masculinity has really come to the forefront. And I'm like, and it, it's, it's so amazing how when you learn how to identify something, like when somebody teaches you how to identify something, you can, that's the only way you re can really understand things. Like I... I feel, that's why I have great empathy for ignorant people because I was not born with this knowledge. I was taught it. And like when I learned about toxic masculinity, I was able to look back at like fight club and be like, that's classic toxic masculinity and look at like Eminem's rap music in the early two thousands and be like, wow, mm -hmm. we were so toxic. It was this, this narrative that culminated in 2016 sociopolitically in our country. 
Um, and I'm, but I'm so grateful that we were able to identify it. Like naming it was so empowering for me. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to push. Or I'm, I've got two thoughts. I think it's important to one put to be able to name something because to be able to name it um, helps us wrap our heads and our arms around it, and then helps us one understand it, two kind of work through it, and then three hopefully move forward from it. Mm-hmm. I also wonder. When you said, you know, it all kind of culminated culminated in 2016, specifically this thought around, you know, toxic masculinity and all of that. I actually wonder if that's true. I actually think that might have been, um, you know, a slight tip on the scale. But I would say that we're only just beginning to get into it because mm. um, I think to have true gender equity. And when I say gender equity, I don't mean within the male-female binary. I mean also in, in, um, including people who are transgender, people who are non-binary. Um, I think even understanding gender, right? Um, how it's so deviant from deviant strong words, it sounds negative, how it's so different than just the sex that you were assigned at birth. Um, I think that we have so much, we have so much, um, we have so many miles to go before we can even really start to think about our end goal of gender equity and understanding that, um, you know, the difference between a penis and a vagina is very, very different than how people understand who they are mm. and trusting that they know who they are. We don't make those decisions for them. And then creating a, a world that allows them to be safe, out, secure, and true to themselves. Um, just two, two, three years ago, 2018, I was working at an, an advocacy organization called One Colorado. And we had worked for many, many months um, with a number of other advocacy organizations to pass um, the, the gender non-binary uh, identification on state IDs. So and it's basically an X designation rather than an M, an, an M, excuse me, or an F. And that was a Herculean effort. It took other states years to get it done. And it was just truly one tip of the iceberg, like one, one type of identification. Um, you know, I think, I think we have so many, so many, um, more miles to go on that front. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm in one sense, I'm really proud of what Colorado does, the, the incremental <clears throat> changes that we make on the mm-hmm. environmental front. And as a socialist, they are not what I want uh, in terms of change, but, but I'm proud of the little change we have in light of what the rest of this country looks like. Um, I wonder constantly whether this is the nadir of our country and we can, we can start an upward trajectory through this struggle or if, or if this is the beginning of the tumble, <clears throat> but I'm always an optimist. So I think I always I think wonder it's that the same idea. thing. <laughs> I'm not an optimist. So that's what one way area that I think we differ slightly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Recently for the first time in my life, I've realized that I'm probably going to leave this world and it's not going to be a, a perfect utopia and B it's, it's, probably not going to be better than when I was brought in. Um, and as a Buddhist, um, it's incredibly liberating to know that we will try and fight, but we will perish. And I'm lucky to be Buddhist and to be, because uh, I'm lucky because I'm really financially safe and, like the Buddha, I'm able to observe the destruction and, and horror uh, and death in the world, but I don't participate in it. I mean, I, I'm making calls later today for no one 115, but 
but I don't have to struggle uh, directly. It's. I think it's really interesting to get to a place where we acknowledge we don't have control um, and to relinquish the desire to even have control of things. Where it's like we can participate and engage in specific ways, whether it's making calls, whether it's voting, um, whether it's having really tough conversations. I think we have a duty and responsibility to do that. Um, and I think at the same time, it's it's healthy, freeing, and liberating to know that we can control only what we can control. And these big ideas or big thoughts, fears, worries, et cetera, about how the world is today outside of our control, how the world will be in five years, how it will be in 10 years, how it will be the day that we exit this, this life. We actually, that's not our struggle. That's not our shit. I, that's my mantra. That's not my shit. Um, and to kind of release yourself from that and to step back from it and say, that's your journey. That's not mine mm. has been, it's been a, a journey important. Certainly it's been tough. And I think it's one that's Im- important to get to. Yeah. I think I've, for my own spiritual journey, I had to go through a struggle um, to like, I needed moments where I was angry and upset and suffering so that I personally could move beyond it. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's weird, but anyway, no on 115. That's all I got to say, Kara. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, I, so it's funny. I think about this a lot. So I'm a social worker. Um, and when I was in, so yes, first of all, totally no on 115. It's alarming how close the polls are right now on it. Um, so I'm a social worker. And when I was doing my bachelor's in the social work program at Western Michigan university in Kalamazoo, Michigan, um, we were, I think, kind of starting to fill out our paperwork to do our first field placement or our first internships. And in the social work curriculum, you have to do oftentimes an unpaid internship, which I think it's bullshit that it's unpaid. Um, but you have to do an, an internship, and it's basically like applied learning and how life really is in the field versus how we read about it in textbooks. And I think that's a productive modality to learn. Anyways, we had to fill out some paperwork. And one of the questions that we were prompted to ask ourselves is kind of what's the one, what's the one population or one area that you feel like you can't work on? Um, understand that's an iterative response, but it's still, I think, an important self-reflection. And that may be because it's too close. It may be because you have some sort of bias. It may be that you're untrained or you don't have the skill that you need. Regardless of whatever that may, that thing is, what is your area or areas and acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think about that a lot. And I kind of right off the top of the bat, or right out of the bat, I was like, I... I would be an ineffective social worker working with some certain populations. Like I love, I love older people so much. Like it is unhinged. I have no boundaries with it. I would like not be able to not take it home. That's one population. But one content area that I've learned as I've aged over the last 10 to 15 years is that I, I really struggle to work in a professional setting on reproductive justice um, when I was in my master's program, I, I worked at the um, Planned Parenthood in St. Louis. That's the only place in the entire state in Missouri that you can get an abortion. And I worked in the political entity, their 501c4, which is different than a health center and it's different than a nonprofit. Um, you have very, so with Planned Parenthood in particular, you have different um, organizational structures working on different things. They're entirely separate organizations, which I think is a huge misunderstanding. 
um, but it's also one of the most conservative states in the country, especially at that time, um, and had a veto-proof majority, um, conservative-controlled legislature. Mm. And I realized that it was one area to, it, it was, it's too close for me as someone who is of child rearing years, years and um, is not in a place to have a, a family and is not someone who's willing to be abstinent. Like I think it's, it's one of those content areas where I get so overwhelmed and so stressed that it's almost like I can't quite breathe, you know? And it's like, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. This is so personal. Mm. Um, and I think it's, that's just one area that I've done a lot of self-reflection on. And it's like, I can, I can volunteer, I can make calls, I can talk to friends, but when it, when it, when it's a purely objective professional, like work space, I, I, that is one area I'm not an effective social worker in. Mm. And I do policy. I don't do clinical care. Yeah. Um, I am just, I am not unbiased. It is so close to me. And, uh, and I know I have several friends and family members and loved ones who've gotten abortions and that was the exact right decision. Um, it is very overwhelming to me to think that we are so close to being a society where we force people because not just women have pregnancies, um, trans men and non-binary folks can have pregnancies. Mm. Um, it's horrifying to me to know that we we are so close to living in a society where we are going to force, force birth on people um, and then not care for them after the fact. And uh, I don't really know where to go from that, but that's one area that it's, I, I feel like we're closer to the apocalypse than progress. Yeah. Yeah. It's happened. It happened in Ireland the last five mm-hmm. years, um, maybe more, but it, it happens in Western fund Christian fundamentalist countries. I explain, I am, I am on this great political group chat with my friends from college, which has been going on for many years. And, um, my friends ask like, why don't they'll ask semi rhetorically, like why don't Christians understand that they complain about religious freedom and stuff, but then they want to like only enforce their kind of religion. And I think that it's because we don't teach psychology in this country. And I think most people don't understand denial and projection. Mm -hmm. And I I think denial and projection explains like 95% of the problems I see in the world. Yes. Including my own. <laughs> I agree. I think we all struggle with denial and, and projection. Absolutely. And so I think that Christians, especially in the United States, look at like Muslim countries and they're like, we can't have a religious fundamentalist country, but they don't understand that like Christianity can have a fundamentalist. You can be a Christian fundamentalist. And it's like, they kind of don't understand that. I don't know. It's very mm-hmm. bizarre, but people, people's very basic psychology is, is not understood and, and people's understanding of civics is way off in this country. And those two things, as well as like interest rates, you know, should be taught in high school or middle school. Like basic budgeting, how you should pay for college. Yeah. And that good comprehensive sex education. Yes. And understanding that, you know, like I said before, like sex is not the binary. It's not male, female. Mm-hmm. Um, Sex is not just like penetrative intercourse between a penis and a vagina. You know, there's just so much more to it. And, and we have sex different ways. Consent looks very different. I was raised Catholic mm. um, and certainly more, I think, in Irish Catholic culture than 
I would say, you know, a strong ideology or religion, but still I, I went to Catholic schools up through my senior year of high school. So solid 13 years, 12 years. And it was a very conservative part of the state and a very conservative school. Oof. And I think about the things I was taught in health class. Um, and I think about the conversations we had in religion class. Oh no. Oh no. That was Phoebe. Sorry. Conversations in religion. That was, Oh no. That's my Phoebe. Oh Oh, no. That's that's all I'm thinking about is Phoebe. Oh no. Okay. So you had religion. Okay. So it was, um, so did you have health class? I think I don't want to say off base, but I think so. I think I personally think it's off base, but I think so far removed from how the world actually operates. And it's, it just makes it so easy to other because we think that we're right. This is the way, this is the way the world is. This is the way the world should be. This is kind of the, 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 this is the finite content of knowledge that I need to know. And everything else is monstrous. Everything else is wrong. Everything else is bad. Everything else is wild. Like mm-hmm. if it's not in this box of what I'm taught is right and wrong mm-hmm. or right versus wrong. Um, you know, then we're taught to other it and to not even consider it. And I wish, you know, I would have taken, I wish I could have had the hours I spent in pre-calc um, back <laughs> and learned uh, more comprehensively about how the world is. Um, and I have, you know, very loving liberal family. Um, it was an incredibly great education. And it was a huge investment. I think my life has changed dramatically because I have such a strong educational foundation mm-hmm. I think some of the social issues and the religious issues, though, were um, I was stunted until I, you know, went to public school. So I moved out of Michigan. And then it was like, just, you know, you just pop your brain pops off a little bit. Mm. Um, <laughs> and I and I wish that I would have had the brain popping off moment a little sooner mm. or that I was I spent so many hours of my childhood in an environment that that just was more inclusive. So I wouldn't have ever had to have a popping off moment, if that makes sense. That makes so much sense to me. I felt like I learned the most important pieces of information in my schooling in the last semester of school. Mm-hmm. I took a, like I majored in sociology and it was this 400 level class called social change. And it was about the industrial revolution and, and about how people were changing the way in Europe that they thought about themselves and their roles in society. And it was about power structure and the power elite um, in the United States. And it was about how, like, it was about socialism. And I was like, how, how did they, how did you wait until the last semester to tell me this? And my teacher essentially was like, they don't want you to know this. She was like, I had to fight with them about this curriculum, like up and down. And I'm like, wow, this is mind blowing how they should be. This be the, should be the first thing they teach us. And Oh man, it fucked, it fucked me up. Just maintaining the status quo. (laughs) Last night, um, Chris and my boyfriend, Chris and I watched the new Pete Souza um, documentary. He was the White House photographer for both the Obama administration and also the Reagan administration. Mm. Um, So two very different ideologies. And since the Trump administration took over four years ago, he's um, become a very, very, very vocal out front person um, with his opinions and ideas about how kind of the office of the president has changed very negatively in the last few years. Has it? Um, <laughs> I'm just you know, right. And he, it was brilliant. And, and it was, I cried a lot in it because it was so heartbreaking to think about how far we've fallen um, as you know, and I certainly adore the Obama family. And so 
I'm biased, but even from the Bush administration, I think we've lost so many of our um, almost like non-religious political like um, sacraments and how we approach governance. But that as a side, um, one commenter or one commentator in the documentary said in the conclusion how we have two just kind of conflicting value systems or thought processes in this in this country. And it's certainly not Democrat, Republican. That's one kind of juxtaposition. But I think the true heart of it is that our country was founded with these, with this energy of forging new frontiers, progressing, pushing the boundaries, being better, creating for ourselves, mm. very movement oriented, very progress oriented, very change oriented. Uh-huh. And that has been the fabric of our governance system and our kind of identity as a country. Also, we have a significant um, portion or significant energy, I would say, that is all about maintaining the status quo. And it's like, if you have the power, you keep the power. Mm -hmm. And I think if you look at any number of pictures in the news right now, you look at the demographics of people who are, who are emoting and feeling, you know, deeply at like adore um, who adore the Trump administration or Donald Trump himself. Like it is white. It is white people. It is people who have had power, who have had money, who have had privilege, and they are scared absolutely shitless about a, about a, a forged reality or new frontier where we are truly doing something about racism. We are truly doing something about gender equity. We are truly doing something about women who or for people who get pregnant and want to have a family, the ability to afford that family and afford childcare and work and still get raises and get promotions. Um, you know, it's it's not a sum, is it a zero sum game? It's not a zero sum game. It's like, if I get a little bit more, doesn't mean you get a little bit less. But that that mentality is very real for kind of the conflicting ideology. Um, it's the opposite of movement. It's, it's stagnancy, it's stasis, it's just maintaining. And I mm-hmm. think that is inherently the summary of what's happening in our world right now. And I have no idea what it's gonna look like in 10 years. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what it's going to look like in 50 years, but I think it'll be fucking fascinating to look back at this time and be like, AJ, remember when we had that conversation when we were 16, 15 days from the election and, you know, like we were just in the middle of it. Um, I'm so curious to see what the world's going to look like kind of when we move through this. Yeah. I've been, t- yeah, that's why I think it's a real, it feels like an inflection point. I tell my friends, like, doesn't it feel like we're in the middle of, something like I don't want to say it's bigger or more dire because my friends are like well remember that time when like for four days in 1962 like we thought Russia was gonna you know nuke us and I was like that was four days and Mm -hmm. we had JFK as our president totally different or they'll be like they'll be like remember like when that dude Hitler like tried to take over the world and kill all the Jews and I was like we had our best president ever like it's different it's totally we have leadership yeah, I think Trump is the coronavirus of presidents. I wrote that down during your mm, I like that. some reason. There's, um, I, yeah, I've I've been loving reading about like the the history of our country, even as an adult. Even though I got a quote unquote great history growing up, like I went to one of the best public schools in the country growing up mm. in high school, and the, there were like Ivy League teachers, literally every, at every period. Um, and so I learned from quote unquote, the best. And 
it was like incredibly Anglo centric. Um, and I'm reading this or I'm about to finish this book called the indigenous people's history of the United States, which is incredibly mm-hmm. depressing. But one of the themes is that people who, uh, people who carry out genocide often don't know that they're doing it. And happens slowly. Children yeah. in cages, forced hysterectomies. Yeah. And this, yeah. this woman paints this amazing picture which I never realized was that like the British empire invaded Scotland and then they used the traumatized Scottish to invade Ireland. And then they used those same people, the Scots Irish at that point to like carry out genocide in the colonized, you know, U S and it's a, it's a great story and really depressing. I mean, she tells a great story. But it's this this common theme, like you said, like our country was founded on these ideals and it's in our blood to the end. We don't even realize it and we'll deny it if anybody tries to mention genocide. So that's great. That's a great point. And what I, I think that it is, provides a more robust or thoughtful or kind of picture to the point that that commentator on the documentary was making about like we have these two kind of value systems of just maintaining the status quo and keeping what we have while also pushing for more. Mm. I think we have a lot of other things woven into the fabric of this country that includes sexism, that includes racism, that includes otherism, that includes, mm. um, you know, discriminate uh, discrimination and fear against anybody who's not Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're, you know, your skin is not white, like we, um, we have like this systemic inherent uh, f- fear or um, terror in some ways mm-hmm. of anything that's other or different. And I don't say that to give us a pass. Um, and I don't think it's something that's like in our DNA. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying it as is like, we need to own it and put words to it to move through it and do better, especially as, as someone like me, who's a very privileged identity as a white cisgender mm-hmm straight woman who's you know educated with a graduate degree um it is on specifically my identity to do better um the women's liberation movement uh categorically and systemically left behind women of color um and we have reparations frankly uh to do to make up for that and to continuously do better now and to make space for other people to lead and um, and let go of the power we have as the as the predominant status quo. Um, it's really complex, mm-hmm. and I think we you know addressing racism isn't on the back of people of color. It's on the back of white people to do better. Mm. Period. Yeah, I think this reminds me of what I what we were saying before about how I being able to identify something empowers yourself. Um, and, and, and leads to a lot of progress. And so when I learned as an adult, the the concept of intersectionality, everything, Mm -hmm. it all snapped into place as a socialist. I understood these things, but to, to understand intersectionality as, you know, how racism and misogyny and othering and all of these things that you were talking about are, are tools of oppression by the elites and the answer to overcoming these things 
in my opinion, is working class solidarity. Um, and I, I just love, um, I really cherish ideas of, of bringing the intersectionality together and like overcoming the, the false narrative that the elites push that these are separate issues. And, and, um, as a, as a white cisgender man, this is my utopia, (laughs) but, but I really believe in like class politics and, um, I just find so much unity in like what the black lives matter movement has as a white cisgendered man. Also, I think, I think I've been saying, I, I wish we could change the name to all lives matter. Um, and I get so much pushback from my progressive friends because it's not my place to name the movement. And it's like the activist place to name the movement. And I, kind of disagree with that. I think it's the intellectual's place to intellectualize the movement and to be able to like filter the message for people who who sound like me. Um and I the two most prominent examples I was able to think of when I was talking with my progressive friends was the pro-choice phrase which was not developed by activists. It was developed by an intellectual, an executive director of like an abortion rights nonprofit. He was the one Mm -hmm. who coined the term. And of of course it was in reaction to the pro-life phrase, which the assholes coined first. Mm -hmm. Um, But I thought that was a, I think pro-choice is a genius thing. I don't think we should call it fetus mutilation or fetus uh, extraction, which is what it is or whatever it is. Um, (laughs) Simple medical procedure. Yeah, but I love pro-choice. I think it's a great, I think there is like a sense of marketing that goes along with it. And I would love if we could steal the phrase all live matters and say, gotcha, we got your phrase and we believe in humanity. But anyway, rant over. I think that I do, I hear that. I think the point though, when we say black lives matter is just raising people who are black up to the level of even like basic humanity because they're, they're denied that categorically and systemically right now. Mm-hmm. And so the conversation isn't really about making everybody equal at this point. It's, it's really more targeted than that, where it's like we need to carve out space and do better and, and make and um, raise up the life, the value, the worth mm-hmm. of Black people and just acknowledge that they fucking matter. Because right now, everything about our society says they don't. And not just says it, in practice, it shows that they don't. And so I think maybe we'll get to the point in the future where we can talk about true equity around all identities. Mm-hmm. But I don't. I think we're so far from that at this point. And I think we need to very specifically call out that our Black community members and peers are treated as if, treated as if that they don't matter both in practice in ideology and um, in policy. I love this conversation about this, this like internal debate of um, how to influence others, how to rally support and to change Mm -hmm. minds. And sometimes I think there might be a difference in approach if you want to change minds versus rally support. And sometimes that needs to be balanced because like Mm -hmm. everybody, like there shouldn't be anybody who's voiceless and, and it should be a democratic, democratically administered movement, you know? So you want the, that difference. Yeah. 
which is, this is why I'm like so positive as, as a really privileged person, I'm allowed to look at, I'm able to <laughs> look at the world burning and be like, I'm so optimistic, mm-hmm. but, but I feel like, yeah, we've been able to, as a society, like identify problems and uh, possibly grow. That's mm-hmm. the hope. Um, yeah, I, so I talk with a lot of conservatives. I have like really close friends and family members who are like some Fox news brainwash victims, some quote unquote independents, um, who, who are brainwashed uh, from, from a different perspective, from a non-Trump perspective, but, um, and like small business owners who have been betrayed by neoliberals and so who, who don't know how to vote. Um, but I, I love talking with them and, and, um, this thing has come up about personal corruption, um, and, and like political implications of that corruption. So sorry to change the subject, but, um, no, I'm, I'm, I like it earlier. My, my one conservative friend who's, who's a litigator, he's currently a defense attorney, does like amazing work in Pennsylvania. Um, but he's like a lifelong Catholic Republican. And he was like, well, and he was in, and Republicans seem to hate hypocrisy. <laughs> and so he was like, well, Hunter Biden has all this political corruption and Joe Biden is really corrupt. And he trades, he essentially trades his name and his status for personal gains. And he negotiates out working class people. I'm editorializing. This is what I agree with, with them. But he's like, why don't you, you were saying four years ago that you shouldn't vote for Trump because he's such an awful person and he's corrupt, but look at this corruption. And I re I said like, you're right. Like I shouldn't have as a white cisgendered man. I, I don't, I, sh- I don't think I should have harped so much on the, the access Hollywood tape and his, and Trump's awful personal behavior and his super corrupt business career. I honestly should have just focused on what I think the issues are, um, which is policy and like what the president does for our country, like appoint judges. Um, and so I was saying like, if, if Bernie Sanders was a murderer, like if Bernie Sanders and AOC were on the ticket and they were like murderers versus, versus like an upstanding Republican, like Gary Johnson mm-hmm. or something. I'm like, man, that's a tough decision. <laughs> I think I might still vote for Biden. So like I, I have a lot more empathy for her for how Trump people or how people who believe in, in abortion, uh, who, who are against abortion. Like, I understand how they're like, I don't care how awful a human being this person is. I want my policies pushed through hmm. because I feel the That's same interesting. Way. I don't, I, 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 I can't even meet that person halfway. I'm so, um, I think also because I work in a political world, I certainly understand how our personal lives um, whether we like it or not, will eventually come out public. And I think it says so much about our character. And I think it's, it says so much about um, how we show up in the world for ourselves, for others, and how we will show up uh, professionally and, and govern. Um, and I, I, I think that you cannot separate those two. Um, period. And so I, I, I wholeheartedly disagree. I can appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, if somebody, yeah, actually I'm not going to continue to elaborate. So I think I've made my yeah, point, but you did. Um, <laughs> if it was my ideal, my ideal candidate did everything right. Um, and we had some really grotesque, 
you know, criminal case pending or, or, or in person and they hadn't been prosecuted for it, they hadn't been rehabilitated, whatever, um, the work hadn't been done after the fact, I think it would, it would change my perspective on their um, kind of ability to push my policy agendas forward. Because ultimately, I think people mm -hmm. vote for the person. They don't push for the agenda yeah. as much as they, as they would like to think that they do. Um, I also think that certain identities are allowed to have more skeletons in the closet than others. Mm. Um, like the Obama family had to be perfect. Not only perfect, they had to be three notches above perfect yeah. as the first black family mm -hmm. uh, to be in the White House. And Obama had to be perfect. Um, he wore the wrong color suit once and got, fucking, <laughs> you know, smammered in the press for it because that's how high his bar was. Mm -hmm. um, so, of course, someone like Donald Trump, who's wealthy, white, successful, quote unquote, comes from generational wealth more than independently wealthy. Of course, he gets many more passes. Kamala Harris does not get those same passes. Elizabeth Warren does not get those same passes. Mm. Um, someone who is transgender does not get those same passes. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think that's an important part of the conversation when we're allowing ourselves to grant somebody a pass for a skeleton in their closet. We have to think about who they are and why they're getting a pass and how their identity impacts our ability or our willingness to give them the pass. I um, mean, your gender and your race are certainly integral parts of that. That's so true. It, it reminds me that I've learned a lot of conservatives live in what I call the conservative fantasy land where they think that everybody's treated completely equally and mm -hmm. it's like a 100% meritocracy and like nobody has inherent biases and it's, it's something else. Um, yeah. And also the other, to your point, it is different. Like Joe Biden may be corrupt, but he's not as corrupt as Trump. So it's very easy to make the argument that Trump is more corrupt. Uh, Ivanka Trump is more corrupt than Hunter Biden. So it's not like I should abandon, it's like I'm choosing to abandon that argument, but it's not like that argument's not still valid. It's very clearly still valid. Um, yeah. Uh, and also the other reason it's like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> These people are ridiculous. Is like, this is not reality. Like in reality, AOC and Bernie Sanders are empirically some of the least corrupt people uh, in the world. Like I, I was positing this to my conservative friends, the four or five that I talked to about this stuff, I said, um, do you, don't you agree? Like you may think that AOC and Bernie Sanders policies are awful and dangerous. Um, but you can't, you, you surely will agree that they are uncorrupt people and they, they are not corrupt in the way that Joe Biden is. And they all agree. They're like, you're right. I agree with that. So, hmm. so reality is the people I most support are the least corrupt. It seems like most people agree on which is nice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we all have our shit. You know, I think, you know, even the fact that we get to sit here and, and talk about, well, that person's shit is worse than that person's shit, which is worse than my shit. You know, it's like none of us, we're all human. We all fuck up. Um, and I think it's more important to look at the work being done after the fact and how we, how we acknowledge our fuck ups and how we move forth, you know, how we move through our fuck ups to do better. And, um, show up for the people that we've hurt. And I think some people in power do it better than others. Some people do it. Some people don't. Um, so I think that's a really important part too, that if we think about our system and how we criminalize certain behaviors, okay, our system criminalizes certain behaviors, period. Um, but what happens after that behavior and after that person kind of does their time 
um, and, how, and how do we carve out space for forgiveness and how do we carve out space for change? Um, and again, who do we grant, grant that space to um, and how much space? So mm. I think that's an important thing to think about too. I'm a little rambly right now. No, I love that. That's what the pod, that's what podcasts are all about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have recently been getting into this new kind of meditation, which relates to my political work and my mental health and everything we've been talking about. It's called Tonglen, T-O-N-G-L-E-N. And it's a, a very really s- simple meditation where you essentially envision somebody besides you. And this could be like a complete stranger or it can be like an acquaintance that you feel neutral about, like a neighbor or a coworker, or it could be somebody that you hate. Um, but it kind of ranges, but you think about this other person and you meditate on understanding and feeling and absorbing their pain, their karmic pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so that, I don't know, I don't want to go into a dissertation about karma, but yeah, there, you, you absorb their karmic pain, if you will, and you send them compassion uh, or empathy And it's just this process of exchanging the pain that, and so I do this with police um, Mm -hmm. because it's like a really sensitive topic for me. And so I think about the pain that uh, this one, just one individual policeman uh, that I'm making up in my head, or maybe that pulled me over one time or whatever. And I think about like the pain that they've gone through in their life and their experiences and like their karmic pain. Um, And I try to understand that and feel it as my own, like as my own Mm -hmm. life. And then I give them just my like complete compassion. And I've noticed that in real life, like it's, it's working because this is supposed to, this meditation is supposed to make you feel more empathetic in real life. And it has. Mm -hmm. And yeah, empathy. I mean, I was talking with a friend about this recently or I said, I was like, we all, and humans inherently have empathy or Americans, like it was more within the American context, but it's like, we as individuals have empathy and we need to kind of consider how to like, you know, um, strengthen that muscle a little bit. <laughs> and he was like, no, I actually totally disagree with you. Like human beings do not have empathy. Like some human beings do, some Americans do, some people do. But not everybody does. That is not a given. That is not like, that's not like the foundation we're all going from. And I thought that was so interesting. I'm like, he was like, sympathy, sure. Like sympathy is very different than empathy. But he's like, I think some people are inherently unable to empathize with another person's experience. And I'm so curious kind of as to how that's happened or why. Um, If that's true, if it's not, I don't have an answer, but it's an interesting thing I've been noodling on lately. Hmm. Yeah, I, that's a, that's a weird one. This reminds, this makes me think periodically like, man, I wish I became a scientist who studied primates and like primate, mm-hmm. primate consciousness. Um, but earlier we were talking about learning new words and identifying things. And I was watching videos of the silverback gorilla, like learning new words via sign language. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking like, I th- I think that this gorilla is, le- is learning more consciousness. It's becoming more conscious as it learns more words. I think the fact that it learns who you are and what this banana is. And like, I'm, I might be wrong cause I'm know nothing about this field. So my, uh, maybe a neuro neuroscientist would be like, you're an idiot and you're wrong. <laughs> but I, I have this feeling that 
that they would acquire that. But I feel like, um, yeah, I would study primates also to see if they have empathy, but maybe I'm also way off on that. I feel like we all do. Mm. I mean, I think we're all capable of it. I think that's ridiculous to say that. Uh, unless you unless you have like some genetic or you know unless like a superpower which i don't think em- empathy is a superpower i think people who are empaths have a slight superpower mm-hmm. like i certainly have empathic tendencies in which i can like feel and pick up on somebody else's emotion thought process whether or not i'm in the same room or not i definitely can do that that's that's not common um kind of like it's a kind of a level up from a highly sensitive person but i think just gen- general empathy I think I think we all have to. I think it's part of how humans have survived. Um, but I can totally appreciate that. Just kind of the culture that we're in and the society that we're in, it, it feels very much like we have um, totally devoided ourselves of meaningful and authentic human commu- uh, con- uh, connection at times, mm-hmm. especially in such a divided world that we live in. I guess you just solved my question of what's the best superpower or what superpower would I want? And that would be to make people empathetic. Yeah. I think that's a pretty good superpower. This guy's about to blow it up. Get there, make him empathetic. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Well, I think it makes a lot, it makes it a lot easier to persuade people. You know, I certainly, I work in a field and have for a long time. I think social work in general is a field that's, um, you know, well accustomed to this, but I'm most effective in my job when I can get other people to see what I see mm-hmm. and do what I want them to do. And there are so many ways of doing that. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, just goodwill due to empathy is probably the easiest way of getting people to come together and engage with something. Mm-hmm. But when people are, when the, um, constituent group or the stakeholder group or whatever, um, literally doesn't give a fuck about the, the emotional implication of something or the, 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 you should do it because it's the right thing to do when that is totally devoid of the rationale or the motivation to do something. It makes it a lot harder. Um, you have to get a lot more creative. I think those places are a little bit more fun, but <laughs> if everyone had empathy, frankly, if everyone had empathy, uh, you know, I wonder if we would all just like crumble because we're emotional messes mm. or if we would just be like kinder, and more connected as individuals. Not that we would agree, but we're just kinder to each other. And it feels like we are missing kindness rampantly right now. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's like any, a, a battle that humans have been going through, which is between empathy and trauma. Um, mm. Like I, cause I've thought a lot about how I think a lot of our defining traits are because of trauma. And like, I mm-hmm. think, I think we evolved because of trauma. I think that like, conflict is like a healthy version of trauma or like, like there's, you know, there's healthy stress and unhealthy stress. Yep. It's called like hormesis. Um, yep. You know, like when you go into the sauna. And so I like maybe healthy stress is that balance between something being impactful, but you have empathy, you have like nourishment from, from like essentially a, a, a caretaker. Um, because I do think that, like when there's trauma, you are unable to see, you're unable to like your, I think your vagus nerve is unable to like your subconscious brain is unable to like recognize friendly facial features in another human. And like yep. you see another human and you get enraged because you've been abused or neglected by humans. Yep. Um, so yeah, I think there might be a dichotomy or like a balance between 
trauma and empathy or they're two sides to the same coin or something. I don't know. Yep. Yep. And I think the way that we, I think the way that we deliver services, and I think about this as someone who, you know, um, oh, interesting. Something's happening with my computer. Um, I think the way that we, and I think about this because we're in, I work in healthcare, I work in public health specifically within uh, kind of the mental health space, but everything kind of my world revolves around health. Health is polling as one of the number one priorities that people vote and motivates people to vote. The Affordable Care Act is potentially about to be totally deconstructed, which would be devastating to our country. Um, So health is very much in the forefront of my mind constantly. So I think about the ways that we deliver services, whether it's through the Harm Reduction Action Center or it is um, through a primary care office, whether it's, you know, case management as a social worker, just the idea that we are, we are providing care that's trauma informed and like meeting people where they are at is like so important. And I think it's an, an area of like cultural competency um, or maybe just competency um, that we all could learn up on quite a bit, but I think it's something that we all need to, um, I think we all just need to do better on. Um, and I think, you know, the healthcare system has made great strides. I think harm reduction action center is a phenomenal example of meeting somebody where they're at without judgment, um, and acknowledging that they've had a road before you interact with them in this very moment. And like, you don't really get to opine or judge how they got here. And that's just being trauma informed. And that's different than like trauma acknowledging. It's just like, you're like, you're delivering care and delivering services. That's going to improve somebody's health and their livelihood and not shaming them for the things that have happened in the road before that meeting. And I think that's really important. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You need to, I believe in like the healing power of empathy, giving empathy to help heal trauma Mm -hmm. is, is part of my mantra. Yep. Um, I will see really contentious online debates about, the police, because I have a lot of family members who are um, corrections officers and a couple who okay. are police who are married to policemen. Um, and I have firemen family, but, but yeah, I have a lot of like corrections. We're, we're I have like cop families that are extended okay. families. And so they get into these like really contentious arguments with people online and I'll come in and they'll be like, I, th- I think it's really important for us to have empathy and to think about, think about each other's like have compassion towards each other. I think that's like, mm-hmm. re- that, I think that would be like really nice to see. <laughs> um, yeah. And I don't point any, anything out. And then, and then people will be like, be like, yeah, they should be empathetic and they should be more compassionate. <laughs> I'm like, you're not really getting, <laughs> it's really a two way street. Um, it's a give and get kind of thing. Yeah, that is. Um, I, do you, I, I would love to talk about Hamilton unless you have other thoughts about this that we can ramble on about. Um, yes, I would love to talk about Hamilton. I'm a novice in Hamilton. So you saw but it on I, Disney? Uh, I saw it on Disney, yeah. So I'm, you know, I've got so many friends who have been on the Hamilton, you know, fan bus for, for years, right? And I was like, yeah, I mean, it's cool. Like I'd listen to it on Spotify maybe like once, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I like, I appreciate that you like this. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I'm going to go back to listening to Trampled by Turtles again. Um, <laughs> and then I saw it on Disney Plus mm-hmm. and uh, I was like, oh my fucking God. Mm-hmm. I think I get it. Like, I think I get it. And then I started listening to this, the soundtrack on Spotify religiously. Mm-hmm. Um, and it helps a close friend and colleague of mine uh, is, is obsessed. Like, is obsessed. <laughs> yeah. And so she's translated quite a bit about the things that I didn't quite quite get before i think i was ultimately um, a little bit intimidated by the hamilton fan club um as a novice (laughs) and a newbie to it so i but all i can say is i'm here and i uh i hope to be able to see it in a couple years when it when we're able to see musicals in person yeah yeah. i love that that was a really great synopsis you got me like all caught up on your your hamilton mindset that's where i'm at i fucking love it yeah man i hope i can be as succinct as you I also saw it on Disney plus and did not see it in theaters or in the theater. Um, and I wasn't, wasn't looking forward to it particularly. Um, I figured it'd be fun to watch, but I wasn't ever going to see it on Broadway or anything because I had heard the songs once through and I just like, wasn't, I just like, wasn't feeling it or I didn't, I, yeah. I guess I didn't hear a couple of them. Cause in hindsight, I like a couple, but um, it just like, wasn't my style, even though I love hip hop. And then it came on Disney Plus and I'm like, yes, this is great. I'm so excited. And it was, it was, I had so much fun watching it. Um, I don't, I, I usually either love uh, a musical or I fucking hate it. Like, like Dear Evan Hansen, I think it was called. Mm -hmm. Fucking get out of my face. Um, But, but uh, like Waitress is like the best thing ever. So mm-hmm. I, and it's rare that it's in between and Hamilton, like I don't really care for, but I kept thinking about for like days on end, like weeks on end, I kept thinking about the songs and thinking about the performances. I thought mm-hmm. that the, I thought that the Aaron Burr performance was like the most charismatic thing. Mm-hmm. I, I was like, I want to see that guy in everything. Like yep. just put him in every movie and that'd be cool. Yep. Um, yeah. But all of them were great. Um, so yeah, it was, it's really cool. But as a socialist, I think it's, I think it's because I'm a socialist. Like I can't, I fucking can't. If I think if it was about the Haitian revolution, Mm -hmm. I'd I'd probably be much more inclined to love it. Yeah. Um, But I don't love, I appreciate, I understand the irony Mm -hmm. that like, it's all these black people like, like playing the parts of slave owners. But um, you know, like the daughters, I forget those, those chicks, you know, that their father was like one of the worst people like an yep. empirically an awful person. And um, I just, I can't, and I'm so, like, I, they intentionally created a republic so that, so that people couldn't vote. Like, they intentionally restricted voting. Like, they're undemocratic elites. The American Revolution was a conservative revolution. There was no land yep. redistribution. You know, it's all elite landowners who wanted to keep tax revenue. So I'm too jaded. Is it too close? Is yeah. it like my, my reproductive justice work is too close. Way I can't, close. I can't enjoy the fight. Way too close. You want to give me like, um, uh, the, the Pueblo revolt in New Mexico that I learned about as an adult since moving to Colorado, mm-hmm. um, how they drove out the Spanish colonizers and missionaries for like probably eight to 12 years before they came back. But man, I would watch that. But like I said, the Haitian revolution, yeah. Hmm. I think though it's important. I think it's coming at a unique time. Hamilton specifically, 
because it's dusting off and making sexy um, a really ugly part of our history. Mm. And maybe it's sugarcoating a little bit. I certainly don't want to make it sound like I'm forgiving any of this. Certainly not. But I think it's putting it back on the forefront of conversation. Um, mm -hmm. I think it was a time when we had had time being we're all supposed to be technically quarantined yeah. a gift from a gift from the universe in that way. But it's also at this really interesting time of disruption and we have this opportunity, like we have this opportunity to kind of reformat and re restructure our lives because we can't do any things that we used to be do. Mm -hmm. We also are at this opportunity to kind of restructure our country p potentially. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's forcing us to recall the way we came to be and the ugliness of it as well. Um, and it's doing it in a fun, a more fun way than like a really dry documentary. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so yeah. maybe that's the silver lining. It's like they, they did the wrong things for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. Like they repeatedly refer to Hamilton as an immigrant. And when you move from the U S from the British Virgin islands to the British colonies, mm -hmm. you're not an immigrant. <laughs> I did not right. emigrate to Colorado, but there that's the wrong thing for the right reason. They want to mm -hmm. empower immigrants. So I'm like, I can't, I gotta, I, I can't be so uptight about this. Like, like it's a good thing overall that people like this. Well, and your, I mean, your knowledge around the area is probably far greater than the average, your average peer. Uh, um, yeah. And so probably is obviously a generous word. It's definitely um, far greater than the average peer. And so those nuances, I think get lost for the vast majority of people who are just purely enjoying it. And then they're like, Oh wow, I actually want to know more about this. And they haven't revisited this narrative of our country probably since elementary school history. If they went to a school that was, you know, strong enough to even provide that basic lesson. You're right. So yeah. I don't know, maybe this is where my, my optimism is shining through or maybe, you know, spending a little bit more energy on the silver lining. Whereas I tend to be like the harsh realist. Mm -hmm. And I, I often am like, that's, you can't do that. That's I'll pick things apart like that. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And maybe because I'm so new to this, you know, <laughs> I'm not nearly as close as you are. I, a few weeks ago when we were chatting at a harm reduction action center event, I mentioned that I used to be like essentially an intellectualist, if that's mm -hmm. a word. Um, and recently going along with the empathy stuff, I've really worked worked on having more empathy for people who are less sophisticated than me and less articulate, like whether it's like a service industry person at like office Depot, I'm like I need to not go, go like New Yorker on this person because like they don't mm -hmm. fucking deserve my emotional like outbursts and like, they're not getting paid a lot. Like this is an awful economy and this person's in an awful situation and I should just not be a dick. Um, but I've with the, the people being fans of Hamilton, that's helped me. I'm like super empathetic. I'm like, if you want to love Hamilton, like I love that. Yep. I just don't. <laughs> well, that's also your shit. I find I get really angsty and I'm super impatient. And I think that's the way like my grief and my kind of reaction trauma, frankly, because we're all experiencing incredible trauma right now with this pandemic, whether we are cozy at home and more financially secure than others, like we are all experiencing incredible trauma. I find that my kind of responses to trauma show up in being extremely irritable, very short tempered, um, 
I get exhausted by people very easily and where I have a much longer bandwidth before a higher threshold. And I'm trying highly unsuccessful thus far. I think just I'm at the phase of just acknowledging that's kind of the way I'm showing up, mm. um, which I kind of got to through acupuncture, like you mentioned. Mm. Um, but I have to like constantly stop myself and be like, this is my shit. That is not their shit. Mm. Like my bad day, my mood <laughs> has nothing to do with this person. And yes, like, this probably sucks. And I'm probably the third asshole in the last 10 minutes to be pissed at them, you know, and it's not about them. Like it's about who knows what. And so I, um, I think this is a great story and I encourage you to, or, you know, charge you to take up the mantra, that, you know, mm-hmm. it's not my shit or that is my shit and kind of move on. <laughs> yeah. It's a good boundary. Yeah. Cause I used to be a crusader. I'm like, I'm mm-hmm. going to change the world through my anger. Like, like mm-hmm. if I make, Anger's a much more comfortable emotion to me than sadness. Hmm. So like yeah. I would, you know, I get that. I was telling my therapist, I think that I was, I, I have a pattern. My whole family has a pattern of, um, making other people feel guilty mm. so that possibly they will change their behavior. Um, and what ends up happening is you successfully make them feel guilty (laughs) and then you, and then I myself feel guilty for making them feel guilty and, Mm. and their behavior is not going to change. And now I'm just like an asshole. (laughs) It's like, I did not solve anything I was trying to accomplish and my whole family does that. And so I've, I've gone from a place of doing that and not knowing I'm doing it to doing it and knowing that I'm doing it to doing it and catching myself as I'm doing it. And that's like mm-hmm. where the stage I'm at right now is like, I'm doing it and I'm catching myself as I'm doing it. And I'm trying to reroute that and apologize. Maybe if I already said something too far. Um, mm-hmm. And so maybe in the coming years, I'll just be able to evolve. Further. <laughs> it's quite a process. Well, and, and you know, it's not linear, right? Our journey is on these, um, in these ways um, mm. are very iterative. They're very cyclical. And they are not linear. One of my, one of my best friends in the entire world lost her fiance very suddenly a couple of years ago, right before Christmas. He died very unexpectedly, very suddenly of a health condition. Oh and um, and one of the things that we've talked about consistently since, and she's you know started you know to date a little bit more and is in a relationship again with somebody else. Um, but we consistently, even now, it's been a couple of years that we talk about what stage of grief are we in today? And we can't, and even right after this terrible, terrible, you know, moment, day, period of time, you know, I felt, I think we all as just like control oriented, productive people want to like check that phase off the list, right? We want to we got through the resistance phase. Now on to denial, <laughs> down denial. Now we're angry. Yeah. You know, we want to like move through and, and it's a terrible, uncomfortable realization um, and acceptance to get to the place of like, no, I'm going to go back to denial. I'm going to go back to angry or this will be a sad day. And a sad day might pop up years later. Um, and I think like, so our mantra as a group now is this is not linear. This right. is not linear. Right. You don't get to just, you don't get to just check through that, um, check through that item on your to-do list. Uh, Cause it's, it's going to come back to you. And I think this, these self-reflection journeys we've talked about, whether it's how we interact with a person at Home Depot or um, work as a white person on anti-racist policies to our, our own self-care and mental health. Like it is not linear and it is super cyclical 
and we're all going to fuck up and we have to just like move through it and move on. Yeah. That's also, it, it is progress. It's, yeah. it's hard because our brains are linear. I don't know if that's societal or ingrained, uh, you know, genetic, but like, yeah, because we think in linear terms, uh, I think we look at, we conceptualize that uh, as back as not progress. Like you said, it's cyclical and it's not linear. Mm -hmm. uh, as I, I was explaining to a friend how I um, had this incredible um, spiritual period uh, earlier this summer where I um, was in what you would call a flow state and, and, and just had uh, an immense kind of energy that was mm -hmm. quite special. And so my friend said, well, you were in the flow state. What happened? <laughs> like, why are you no longer mm -hmm. in said flow state? And I thought about it for a second. I was like, huh. And I was like, because I, I realized that what, one of the things you realize when you're in a flow state is that the ebb is part of the flow. And when you look yeah. back and look forward at the ebbs in your life, you um, understand in the flow moment that like those were building blocks. Like I, not that everybody needs to go through that particular ebb, but my particular ebb met, led to my particular flow. And this particular flow would not have been here without what preceded it. And, um, and so I just am able to see it as the same thing. Like I, may have left the awareness of flow state, but I'm still, there's two different I'm, there's two different me's. There's like personal consciousness and universal consciousness um, as a Buddhist. In Buddhism, there's something mm -hmm. called the two truths. And it's about how like something mm -hmm. can be, you know, there can be two different truths depending on how you look at it. Anyway, I'm rambling, but it, it related to that um, going through the bad stuff. <laughs> yeah. Isn't Buddhist thought where um, maybe this is the two truths that you're talking about where it's like both and where like this bad thing happened or, or this thing, whatever this thing is, might be good, bad, doesn't really matter. This thing happened and also this other reality occurred because of it. Um, mm -hmm. I was listening to a podcast called On Being with Krista Tippett um, recently uh, and it's in this one particular podcast that the name escapes me, the one episode, the name escapes me, um, talks about the phenomenon of, of ambiguous loss, um, which I think is something that everybody's experiencing right now mm. in this world, because we don't get to do the things we want. We don't, you know, we don't get to do the things we want to do. Um, we've oftentimes lost somebody to death and maybe don't get to have the final culminating, like, sacrament of grieving them whatever that thing is um relationships are changing like there's so much that is changing right now and there's a loss associated with it mm. um and one of and, and they specifically did an interview with uh the person or is it the person or one of the lead um kind of researchers after the fact but the person who developed the different stages of grief um, specifically talk about how it's not linear is one of them. Um, but we also talked about, or they also talked about how the stages of grief were actually developed for the person who's dying. Um, not the people who, um, 
had a relationship with the person who was dying. And it's oftentimes used about how we cope with the fact that we are losing something that we hold dearly or somebody. Um, now I'm starting to ramble a little bit, uh, but one of the things that they talked about specifically with um, families who lost people in the September 11th um, you know, tower crash where they didn't, you know, all of a sudden this person that was in their life is it was no longer in their life and generally didn't get any body back or any remnants to then like hold on to and grieve right and so the kind of the two prong um kind of question that you just brought up was something that a lot of therapists and a lot of trauma-informed grief therapists use is say like this happened and this other thing happened and when we think about it when we when we kind of create these neurological pathways around a thing we have to really challenge ourselves to think about them in a more dynamic way. So it's like, I got in a car crash yesterday and this other thing happened too. That doesn't minimize the negative thing, but it forces us to have a more dynamic thought process and to maybe like move through grief or move with grief. Cause I think it's always with us um, differently. Mm -hmm. So. Absolutely. So do you still practice Christianity? You said you grew up Catholic. I do not, no. <laughs> You're a recovering Catholic as every yes, yes, Catholic ever I, uh, Yeah, no, I, I always joke. The last time I went to a, a Catholic mass on my own volition, and I don't <laughs> even know why I did it. Like I genuinely, I think I was going with friends. I don't know why I went, but it was with um, a couple friends in college, one of whom went consistently at the time. He no longer does. And we had been out quite late at a gay bar dancing and drinking too much vodka or something the night before. And I had like gone to church with him and some other friends in some like variation of effectively like the same clothes I'd worn to a gay bar, like jeans and a blazer or something. I don't know. I was probably still drunk when I went and I literally like walked in and like fainted almost immediately. <laughs> and I joke about how the last time I willingly went to a catholic mass i like fainted and was struck down by the lord yes for my sinning ways um <laughs> which would not make my parents proud i don't think but um <laughs> all that is to say no i don't uh, i don't i don't approach structured religion in in that way whatsoever yeah the holy water was burning when it touched yeah, your skin seriously. <laughs> i love all the the weird spooky voodoo that like catholicism has you got like the, the big swinging mm -hmm. vape thing and you got like the, the I'm going to flick water on you. And like, I think if aliens landed, they'd be like, this is fucking crazy. Like, just like the stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down. I just think it's so funny. In the sayings and the mantras that are said, <coughs> excuse me, um, really at this point without thinking as someone who's been trained <coughs> to sit down, stand up and speak and say the words, um, sound so ominously similar to the statement said um in the handmaid's tale like i went this i went because my mom asked me to go with her so i didn't go on my own volition but i went um uh recently last christmas my mom made it very clear she didn't want to go to catholic mass christmas la christmas mass alone so i went um with her and i was so uncomfortable i looked over her and i was like these are almost verbatim the same words that the women in the handmaid's tale are forced to say like oh my god why do you do this you know um yeah but growing up in it i didn't realize it was weird like not that it's weird i just i didn't think anything of i didn't think critically about it mm -hmm. i thought very critically about catholicism and i pushed back on almost everything because i have a fairly obstinate personality in general um 
because you know my 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 parents really force us to think critically, and ultimately the the curriculum used at my school mm-hmm. really um, taught us to think critically about all things except for religion. Um, so I think I, those muscles were well flexed, mm-hmm. and then being re- removed from it for so long, and then kind of dipping back into it for the first time in a decade, I was like, what is <laughs> this sorcery? <laughs> yeah, it is sorcery. It's voodoo. It's great. Like old, old Catholic grandmothers are always like, um, magical. I always say Mm -hmm. magical Catholic grandmothers. They got like the shrine and they'll like tell you what, tell you if you're pregnant or what sex your baby. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. And I, and I grew up with a healthy respect of some of those things and what they mean and why. And also, um, just the culture of, of shame and guilt Mm. is one that I, um, would never want to continue in, in my family as it continues to grow. Mm-hmm. I've been working and acceptance, on- you know, I was taught very clearly that being, being clear was wrong period. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, that is something I will not let any future children, if I ever have them anywhere near. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, my uncle, so. my uncle was gay. He passed away like maybe 10 years ago, but he was incredibly, um, flamboyant behaving and really gay and our family grew up Catholic and converted to what is regarded as a cult called the way international, which is what I grew up in. Okay. Um, but my, I grew up understanding that homosexuality is a sin or, or it's, it's caught in my cult. We had this term called devil spirits. And so it'd be mm-hmm. like, if you're, if you have homosexual thoughts or urges, you have a devil spirit inside of you. So it's like my uncle had a devil spirit inside of him and he would actively suppress it. Like maybe when I was 10 or 11 or something, he like let, he moved out of his boyfriend's house and his partner kind of, they left each other because my uncle was some crazy celibate Christian. Um, but I believe the tolerance that my family had towards my uncle, albeit in this cloak of weird cultness, the tolerance and love they had towards my uncle paved the way for my niece to be trans. I have a trans niece um, who's eight years Mm -hmm. old. And I think that that was like the evolution and, and my uncle died, you know, five or six years before my niece was born. And I think that there's like a spiritual connection and, and very clearly a genealogical connection in our family of respecting that. And I just think that's so cool. It's like his legacy pops up five years after he's dead. But that was very, very cool. Um, I remember in first grade, this might've been the first crack, the first crack in the armor (laughs) for my, my family imbuing me with Christian brainwashing. Um, I came home from school like crying, um, because I learned that my new friend, Josh Soloichek was Jewish and I was having this crisis, this spiritual crisis, thinking that Josh might not go to heaven because he's not Christian. And my mom reassured me that Josh will go to heaven if he's a good person because, because God doesn't make that distinction. And I remember thinking like, how the fuck do you know? (laughs) And like, aren't Mm -hmm. there like tons of people who like don't think what you think? And like, we don't have the definitive answer. And I think that was Mm -hmm. the first change. It was like, merely being exposed to somebody who thought differently than me having a crisis about it. (laughs) 
I have um, close family members who are religious in um, non-Catholic ways and very devoutly so, very involved in their church as well. Um, and they very strongly believe that if, you know, you are not this specific sect of Christianity, like you will go to hell. And it's been an interesting thing kind of um, navigating those strong belief systems in our family, which is a very progressive family. Um, and it's just kind of like, it's, we don't necessarily approach it as a no-fly zone, as in we don't talk about it, but it's like, okay, I hear you. I don't believe that. I believe this. And we just have to have this like mutual understanding that you're not going to push me and I'm not going to push you. But I do struggle with that as an individual where I'm like, I think that sounds more batshit crazy than really anything else I'm even reading on NPR right now. So like, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Like I, okay. And I, I struggle to continue to like show up and validate someone's experience as being real, even if I think it is so drastically removed from reality. Yeah. I, I, I now tell religious people like you might be right. I don't think you're right, but like, I guess there's oh, a, that, yeah, I, like I, that response. I guess there's a chance that like your ridiculous Christian God exists. I'll literally start laughing at their face. It's quite disrespectful. I've gotten, um, at one organization I used to work for, we would talk about fixing your face when someone would say something to you and you have, like, you notice you have an extreme reaction and you have to like, keep it, um, you got to fix your face, keep it neutral, yes. you know? And it's like, oh, okay, thank you. Yeah. I, um, I've also in recent years been thinking about how I've been trying to uh, categorize in my mind that religion is something created and maintained by humans and not something outside of human activity that humans subscribe to. Yeah. Um, Cause I think that's like accurate, but it's funny how like psycho I tell, tell people constantly like, our brains, we didn't, we weren't evolved for rational thought and like intellectual conversation. Um, mm -hmm. We were, we were, uh, yeah, we, we evolved to survive the next day and survive long enough to eat and, and reproduce. So intellectual thought is hard. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Now listen, Kara, a little birdie told me that your computer is about to die. It is. And I don't have my cord. My cord is so far away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we're going 90 plus minutes strong. I think that was a really, this is a really good for, for a, a first, maybe potentially first of, of many episodes that we might do together. Yeah. Um, I hope that your listeners are as en enthralled as we are in our conversation. <laughs> I mean, there will be at least, you know, there's my mom and then there's, you know, some random hey, hangers on. So we'll see. But this was so much fun, Kara. You are the best. It was great. Thank you for having me. I would love to have another conversation sometime. Me too. I really just so appreciate like who you are, not only as a friend and as coming on this podcast, but like sharing the earth with you makes me feel better about, about being here. So like, thank you so much. I love thank you. Thank you, AJ. That's incredibly kind. It's one of the best compliments I've ever received. <laughs> well, it's much deserved. Uh, I'm going to play our song. It's now our song, The Light. Great. I hope you love him now. <laughs> I, I love him so much. Forward. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna do a deep dive. So thank you again, Kara. I love you. Thank let's, you for having me. I look forward to uh, talking with you soon, and I'll see you even sooner. Yes, let's do it again. Let's go out with The Light. Thanks, everyone, for listening to The Unnecessary Podcast.
Nation, get the sun to your harmony and brighter places. Oh, I am just a higher, tangible dimension. Yet I'm roaming round this walking life with sweet intention. Mm, darkness can't survive with.